Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On this episode, I talk to the husband and wife team of D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedgedis. They've been collaborating together for 40 years. I interviewed them in May at the Montclair Film Festival's Audible Lounge in front of a live audience. Before they met, Pennebaker was already established as a pioneer of modern American documentary. In 1960, he had joined with Robert Drew, Richard Leacock, Albert Mazels, and Terry McCartney Philgate for the groundbreaking film Primary that followed John F. Kennedy on the campaign trail. We had begun our efforts to make a small portable camera that you could take into the streets and that would shoot sync dialogue so that you could make theater, as it were, on the run. But it was kind of a, a, a new beginning in New York, at least, for a kind of filming where anybody could do it. And that was the thing that, uh, that really got people interested, I think, was that you know, unlike, uh, I mean, anybody could play an instrument or uh, write a novel or you did that kind of on your own, but nobody ever thought to make a movie by themselves because that had to be done in factories out in Los Angeles or whatever. And the idea of being able to take a camera and go around with it and simply make a film by yourself was, uh, was a, a, an intoxicating concept. Pennebaker spent three years with Drew Associates. On Sundance Now Doc Club, you can watch some of his films from that era, including Jane, about Jane Fonda in an ill-fated Broadway play, and Susan Starr, about a young pianist performing in competition. Pennebaker went on to make breakthrough documentaries, including Don't Look Back with Bob Dylan, Monterey Pop with Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Otis Redding, and Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars with David Bowie. In 1976, Pennebaker was just over 50 years old when he met Chris Hedges, who was half his age. They joined forces and spent the next four decades making over 20 documentaries together. Their new film is called Unlocking the Cage. It follows the lawyer Steve Wise on a crusade for animal rights in the courtroom. Chris describes what drew them in. Having an animal be a legal person for us seemed like, you know, kind of a novel, if not bizarre, far-fetched idea. We didn't really know what he meant. But, um, you know, he was committed. He was totally passionate about it. And that's what we look for in our films, are people who are passionate and, you know, taking a big risk to pursue some kind of life goal. And that was exactly what Steve was doing. Our conversation touches upon a few of their films, including the latest, Unlocking the Cage. To begin, I asked how they met. She was trying to get her hands on a camera, but she won't admit that. No, I I do admit that. I mean, camera equipment back in the early 70s was um, kind of rare. I mean, there were a couple cameras out there. It was not very many places that you could rent them. They were extremely expensive to buy. Um, I had a Bolex, which was not a sync sound camera. Um, I was making films and having to rent them. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going to pair with somebody. And um, I had seen um, 
some of the Drew films. I had started as an experimental filmmaker, and I decided to put on a film festival, and I rented films from a catalog that had the Drew films in it. And the Drew films, as Tom said, were some of the first um, cinema verite films that were made by Bob Drew, uh, Ricky Leacock, D.A. Pennybaker, Maisels, Terry Philgate, and a few others, including Hope Ryden, who was a woman in the group. And um, I immediately switched to be interested in making films about real life stories and that was the end of the experimental films and uh, when I moved to New York I wanted to work with them and I went to see Bob Drew and asked him if he had a job and um, he was very nice um, and apologized and said he didn't have anything now but why don't you go see Penny Baker and really that's how we began our collaboration I walked in and we had an so amazing conversation so this what year would just yeah. um, this was 1976 so it was 40 years ago uh, Penny, in 1976, where were you at in your career? Broke. <laughs> That's why I got in the fact, job. I, we, were about, uh, to, we were about to declare bankruptcy, only I'd figured out a way not to declare bankruptcy because if you had a slip that said you were bankrupt and you showed it to people who were coming to collect money from you, you showed them that and they went away and didn't bother you. So it was very surface. Eventually I didn't declare it, but... Uh, we, 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 you know, I, I was kind of wondering if I was some sort of momentary thing in my life where everything would be revealed or nothing would be revealed. And uh, Chris appeared, and I thought, uh, and we talked a while, and I thought, you know, if I was going to stick with it, this is the kind of partner I really always wanted and never, you know, because when Ricky and I were so-called partners, we just worked together, but we never made this, the same, worked on the same film very often. So this is a person who had the same sense of how to make a film, I thought, as I did. So uh, I said, we didn't have any jobs. And the next day I called up and said, well, maybe we had a job. So I think she quit her job made and came a, to work. She made an immediate impression on you. I said, we must never leave, let her leave the place. <laughs> and... Chris, was that, that uh, reciprocated uh, attraction? Um, well, sure, for me, it was like a kid in a candy shop because here was all this equipment that, unlike today, where you can film something very cheaply, was very expensive. And um, also, Penny brought me into the editing room, and he had an entire wall full of films that he hadn't edited, but he had shot. And he you know, was basically, well, you know, let's start on these. One of the incomplete projects that Chris picked up to edit had been filmed in 1971 at New York's Town Hall. The night was billed as a dialogue on women's liberation, featuring Norman Mailer in a spiky conversation with Jermaine Greer, Diana Trilling, Jill Johnston, and others. The film was released in 1979 called Town Bloody Hall. Here's Mailer framing the discussion. I think tonight may be an extraordinary night because I think two enormous intellectual currents have been going on in New York for many years are finally reaching their flood waters. Uh, one of them is, is that peculiar spirit of revolution which inquires further and further and further into the nature of man, woman, and society. And the other is, of course, that blessed spirit of nihilism which will rip everything apart, including free speech and assembly. I suspect we may have elements of both before the night is out. I asked Pennebaker what it was like on the night of filming. The person in charge of the uh, of the uh, town hall theater 
had no idea of letting us in. So we had to sneak in the back door, and when he saw us there, he ch would chase after us to try to throw us out. And that was why I, I, I went up on the stage, because uh, I knew that he wouldn't go on the stage and catch me. So I, I did most of my filming of Norman and Jermaine from, from right behind their chair. And then it was, the thing I liked about filming on the stage was you got a marvelous view of the audience. So I got great shots of people that I half knew that were sitting around in the office. And it's quite an audience. That audience includes Susan Sontag, I think Elizabeth Hardwick. I mean, it's sort of like you're looking out over the masthead of the New York Review of Books. Yeah, it's like anybody who was anybody in New York had to be there that night. And so Chris, you open up these cans of uh, film. What is your experience of, of this material? Well, we, you know, we sat down and watched it together, you know, the whole three hours or whatever was shot that night. And um, I just thought it was riveting. I mean, for me, these women were really role models. I mean, the feminist movement was very important to me at that time. Um, and just to kind of see them in this event was, you know, incredible. Uh, also, Jermaine, who came dressed in a very sexy gown with a fox fur wrapped around her defiantly, she and Norman had so much sexual energy between them that, you know, it, it added this whole other element to the event. Here's a clip of Jermaine Greer delivering her prepared remarks. Many professional literati ask me in triumphant tones, as you may have noticed, what happened to Mozart's sister? However they ask me that question, it cannot have caused them as much anguish as it has caused me, because I do not know the answer and I must find the answer. But every attempt I make to find that answer leads me to believe that perhaps what we accept as a creative artist in our society is more, is more a killer than a creator, aiming his ego ahead of lesser talents, drawing the focus of all eyes to his achievements, being read now in by millions and paid in millions. One must ask oneself the question in our society, can any painting be worth the total yearly income of a thousand families? In their first decade as a team, Penny and Chris directed several documentaries. There was a series set in Washington, D.C. called The Energy War. There was a documentary about the automobile innovator John DeLorean. And there was a concert film, Depeche Mode 101, about the new wave band on a road trip. Then, in 1992, they were recruited by young producers to document inside the presidential campaign of Bill Clinton for what became The War Room. I asked how they came to focus on the campaign strategists James Carville and George Stephanopoulos. We couldn't really film with Clinton because he had a photographer and a journalist following him around. They didn't want another pair of um, filmmakers hanging out on top of the other people. So um, basically, you know, you know, we decided, oh, well, you know, should we do this or not? And we, we kind of thought, you know, well, what will happen if, if Clinton doesn't win? We'll have, you know, a film about the campaign staff of the losing candidate, which was not a very saleable idea. But, 
you know, we always thought that, okay, we'll get in there and, um, you know, Clinton will see us and he'll love us and he'll let us in. And he let us in a f at a few different points, but um, really, you know, what happened was we stumbled across James Carville, who kind of seemed like somebody's drunken uncle at a party. <laughs> we couldn't believe he was had a strategy, but, um, you know, he was, and he was brilliant, and, you know, he and George were kind of like, a, you know, a buddy team, and they seemed like, you know, great characters to follow for the film, so... You know, we hung out with them and, and essentially kind of stuck to the war room um, so that nobody could really fault us for not being with the president. We could say, oh, a lot of films about the war room. <laughs> and uh, I think I've heard you say that you were constantly renegotiating your access uh, to, to the war room. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we just kept pushing, pushing, um, trying to get with Clinton and... Um, you know, it didn't work. And, you know, in the end, um, the film ended up being very special because the networks really didn't get that much of Clinton anyway. It's kind of like Clinton walking in the door and then he walks out of the door. And, you know, a TV anchor kind of tells the story. But being in the war room was an exclusive place to be. And, you know, we had all sorts of stories that the press didn't get. Um, you know, one of them that's in the film is when uh, the campaign staff discover that George Bush is printing uh, his campaign materials in Brazil. And, you know, nobody else kind of really knew that, but we knew the story. And, you know, everybody there really thought, you know, this is going to be the turning point for Bill Clinton because, you know, if everybody knows that President Bush doesn't even print his stuff in America with American workers, it's all over for him. And I was very excited about it. And I remember calling up my parents that night going, you know, I can't tell you, but Clinton is going to win. <laughs> and, you know, then, of course, they found some little loophole. So the story you know, didn't happen, but... Another little blip in the right. election. But season. none of the press knew about the story, so it was interesting for them when they watched the film. On the night before the election, they captured Stephanopoulos giving a speech to the staff as he pays tribute to Carville. Besides Bill Clinton, one person really gave his campaign focus. And one person wrote what I call a haiku about five months ago. Change versus more of the same. The economy's stupid. I think if you did a nexus, it would come up in about a thousand places. <laughs> and don't forget health care. Um, you know, I, I was kidding James yesterday. I said he's about to pass from the role of regular human being into the role of a legend. And I think he really deserves it. Because probably for the first time in a generation tomorrow, we're going to win. And that means that more people are going to have better jobs. People are going to pay a little less for health care, get better care, and uh, more kids are going to go to better schools. Uh, so, thanks. When you got into the edit room f for the war room, was it apparent to you that it was going to be the, the film that it came out to be? It never really is. Uh, you, you just... Uh, the problem is you're converting yourself from a person who's eagerly shooting everything that moves that you, you think could be usable to a person that's trying to uh, create a kind of theatrical th vision for people whom you want to have pay for seats and sit in a theater. So you, you become a kind of different person. And your ability to, to, 
to understand or to see whether you've created uh, or have in hand a, a real uh, prize winner, it, it's hard. Uh, you, you, but you, as you go on, you realize that you have characters in it who are really interesting to you. You, you kind of, you're, you're, you really like editing what they do, and that helps give you the sense that you're on a kind of winning ticket, but you don't know it. We'll be back with more from D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is sponsored by SundanceNow.club. Watch hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers. Explore the classic documentaries of Drew Associates, featuring the work of D.A. Pennebaker on Jane, about a young Jane Fonda struggling on Broadway, and Susan Starr, about a pianist in competition with a surprise ending. Also look for the 2010 documentary Kings of Pastry, directed by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges, going behind the scenes of a dessert contest for French chefs. You can watch SundanceNow.club on your TV, computer, or mobile device. Go to dotclub.com to sign up for a free trial. The latest film by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges is Unlocking the Cage, about a crusading animal rights attorney named Steve Wise. He runs an organization called the Non-Human Rights Project. The filmmakers followed him over several years as he fights in the New York courts to rescue four chimpanzees from captivity. In this clip, Wise describes how his interest was awakened in 1979 by reading Peter Sainer's book, Animal Liberation. I had kind of an epiphany because I thought, well, why am I a lawyer? You know, I'm a lawyer in order to pursue justice, to try to, you know, raise up the underdog. And I thought, I can't think of, of beings who are more brutalized than this in greater numbers. And if I spend my life working on their behalf, I will have done more than anything I could do as a, as a, as a human lawyer. I asked the filmmakers how they got started on this project. Steve Wise is a lawyer who, for the past 30 years, has been uh, fighting for protections for animals. And he decided that after using welfare laws and you know statutes, that that wasn't enough. And he devised a new strategy. And first he began teaching in colleges. And he taught animal rights law in some of the first colleges in the United States. And now I think there's probably 150 schools that um, have animal rights courses in them. Um, but he decided that because the welfare statutes weren't really protecting animals, um, that the only way to truly protect them was to change their status from being a thing to a person, from being property, to having some kind of legal right. And he devised a very novel um, strategy to do that. And he was just about to start, and he came to our office and told us about it. And, um, you know, having an animal be a legal person for us seemed like, you know, kind of a novel, if not bizarre, far-fetched idea. We didn't really know what he meant. But, um, you know, he was committed. He was totally passionate about it. And that's what we look for in our films, are people who 
are passionate and you know taking a big risk to pursue some kind of life goal and that was exactly what Steve was doing and also he was about to begin and when you do our type of films you want to start at the beginning and, and uh, as, as dog owners whose whose dog uh, which my daughter got us uh, to, to take in uh, had died so we were uh, we fell in love with Steve because as a lawyer, what he'd done all his life as a lawyer was to go, and if your dog uh, misbehaved and bit somebody who'd thrown a stone at him, he would go to court and save him. And he think he told me he'd only lost one case. So, so we, you know, right away, uh, he was somebody we were really interested in. You must have known as you were starting out that this was probably, this isn't something that's going to be over in two months. No. Sadly, we did not. <laughs> My knowledge of the law, being a you know having paid a few traffic tickets reluctantly, uh, and 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 had trouble when I didn't, uh, was that the law really moves very majestically. But what hooked me was this is such a ridiculous idea that you can go and make the law change because it serves an animal uh, that I really uh, the curiosity made me want to film in a law court where he plead with some judge and to see what the judge would say. So I was hooked just out of curiosity, which probably hooks most documentary filmmakers anyway. And so then what was the process that you know, extended the story over several years? Well, I mean, Steve went and looked at the law in every single state in the United States um, to see what kind of um, precedent cases they had, um, what kind of law they had. He decided he was going to use common law and argue under habeas corpus that this animal was being imprisoned. And he was going to prove that this animal had the cognitive capabilities, um, that it was an autonomous being, and it should be considered a legal person. So um, after searching around, and he wasn't going to take any animals. He, he decided that he wasn't going to you know, deal with the agriculture industry or anything like that. He was going to choose an animal that had been highly um, researched uh, for their cognitive uh, capabilities. So those would be the great apes, um, orcas, whales, elephants. And um, so in the end, he decided on um, great apes, and he looked uh, in, he decided on New York State, and he looked in New York State for um, some plaintiffs that he could argue some chimpanzees that were being held in captivity or used in research in New York State, and that's where it started. Um, but for me, part of the interesting adventure with Steve was going to see some of the primatologists who had done research with chimpanzees. Um, they had uh, taught chimpanzees American Sign Language so they could communicate with us on our level. They had taught some chimpanzees to communicate uh, using symbol boards on a computer. And um, meeting these animals was really transformative for me because I wasn't so interested, and his case really is not a welfare case. It wasn't about that they were being imprisoned. It was about that these animals have the autonomy, they have the ability to be considered a legal person. And seeing how intelligent they were was um, life-changing. Now, 
I've heard some people react to this film and they see Steve Wise as a uh, on the cutting edge of uh, of the law about this. I've seen some people react and think that he's a headline chasing uh, kind of crazy uh, person. Um, do, when you're portraying someone like Steve Wise, where do you see your role? Do you see yourself as an as partly an advocate of his cause or as something more distant than that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I make these films and what struck me when I saw the very first Cinema Verite films was that I just, I had a feeling of being there. And um, that stays with me um, right till today is to kind of give people an impression what it's like to be with this person on this adventure that he's going on. And, you know, people form their own opinion and opinions, and they always have. I mean, I, I've been plenty of screenings of Don't Look Back, the film that Penny made with Bob Dylan, where people come out of there and just say, you know, Bob Dylan is just the most wonderful person on the planet. He's brilliant, and this is why I can see it in this film. And then others will come out and say, you know, Bob Dylan is the biggest shit I've ever seen, and this is, you know, <laughs> this is why. So, um, you know, I think... You know, the same is for this film. I think, you know, easily um, Steve does a lot of promotion of what he's doing. I mean, that's a lot of what it's about is getting this idea out into the culture. And, you know, people can read it whatever way they want. So you've been working together as a partnership for 40 years. I, Chris, I have to ask, when when you met Penny, there's a over 25-year age gap uh, between you. He's He had two ex-wives, a bunch of kids. Like, did that give you pause? Um, yeah. I had to chase her, it's true. <laughs> I mean, of course it did. Um, you know, I had a boyfriend as well that I was living with and had been for several years. So, you know, you know, it was a complicated situation. But I think, you know, the age difference was, you know, something that came about um, as a problem, you know, in some ways, but in other ways, I think anybody who has met him knows that he's endlessly boyish <laughs> and enthusiastic. And so, I, you know, I think the most important thing in a relationship, if you're having a partnership with film, is that you really respect each other and respect what each other does. And, and I think, you know, that's what has made it work for all these years. Um, you know, especially when you're filming, uh, you know, a lot of times people like to have you around, you know, when everything's going good, but then when things start going bad, they're like, why did I have people make a film about me? You know, and, you know, they don't want you around and access becomes very difficult and it's very nice to have a partner at that point. But, um, you know, later in the editing pro process, it's much more of a creative um part of the filmmaking and you know each person you know has their own visions and it's more of a struggle then and we usually do get divorced once or twice during the editing process but you know in the end I, I think we do have similar visions of how we would like to tell stories so it's worked you know I wonder what you think your you know, secrets of longevity are have in a in a 40-year partnership well I I had two previous wives and uh, I like I like them both. Both. I mean, they were not people I disagreed with or, or or got to hate. But the fact was, in order to make a film, and when and if filmmaking is is your, is your passion, that's all you can imagine yourself doing. 
what you want is a partner with whom you share, totally share the adventure. Totally, and that's, I think, the, the thing that, that we have done is, uh, with each other is, uh, is, is share that adventure, uh, which is more than just, uh, you know, uh, uh, cooking, although she's a terrific cook, I'll have to tell you. Uh, but it's more than just living together. It's doing something that you both care about far more than anybody will ever understand. And that that, that is, to me, the secret of, of caring for anybody forever. Chris, is working together over 40 years, has it changed? Um, well, you know, Penny has a harder time getting around now. So a lot of this film, you know, I shot and shot myself because we didn't have any money. And so we kind of just started it on our own. Um, so, you know, part of the adventure is not shared with him in the same way as it was in the past, but the kind of energy and enthusiasm and advice and somebody to fall back on because, you know, I think in our relation sometimes, you know, Penny is, you know, the optimist and I'm the pessimist. And, you know, Fraser probably goes a little bit more on the pessimist side with me. So, you know, you know, it took so long for these court cases to happen and, and you know, we'd be like, you know, is this the right thing to be doing, you know, and... And you know, Penny was always our cheerleader on it. And you know, that's an invaluable thing to have in the process. The one power of documentary film is capturing lives even after those lives have, have gone away. And this year, a notable passing was uh, David Bowie. Penny, you filmed with, with Bowie on his Ziggy Stardust tour in, in the early 1970s. What was that project like? What was that experience like for you? Uh, well, it, it was all kind of an accident. Um, I didn't really know. I knew Bowie, who, who he was, because of, of the song that was on the on the radio. I heard that song, I guess, uh, but I, I didn't know he was. I thought, in fact, he was somebody else. And somebody had, from RCA had wanted to do a promotional film, a little 10 or 20 minute piece of film, to, to promote uh, a, a, a video disc that they were thinking of, uh, they were working on. I don't think it ever actually came out. And so I was supposed to go over and, and film this uh, with him. And uh, uh, I, I finally did go. Uh, I, I, I hesitated for a while because I was doing something else. Um, I was on a raft going down the Mississippi. That's always hard to do. But I, I went with just two cameramen, Jim Desmond, who had been moving with Monterey, and Nick Dube, whom, whom, who was, I think, teaching or just a stu student still at Yale. And uh, we went over, we flew over to, uh, to see the, this concert, which turned out to be uh, his last concert on the tour, although he hadn't told anybody. And, and none, he hadn't told any of the band, so it was... It was kind of fortunate, but when we got there and I saw him, and the first thing, I went into his dressing room and he was sitting in front of a mirror making up, and I filmed him in the mirror, and I was looking at the, at the thing in the camera, and I thought, we're gonna make a film with him. And I, we hadn't planned on it, we were just gonna do a, a quick short thing and leave. And uh, so I told uh, Nick and Jim, we're going to try to shoot a film. So they said, okay, they were ready. And, uh, and the next day, which was the last concert, um, 
we we did film it. I I, I left signs around the theater that the, the the night before saying if you have a still camera, bring your flash guns, all the flash guns you can find because I want a lot of flash guns going off in the theater, and uh, so we did. We shot it the next day, and then nobody knew what to do with it. RCA didn't want it, and uh, I hadn't. We didn't have rights to any of the music or anything else. And uh, so I came back, but I did. I decided to make the film, and uh, it was such a fantastic thing to watch him. I mean, it's hard to describe, but this guy, from both men and women, was a very sexy person to watch perform, and he could carry a 90-minute show all by himself on stage, which was amazing. I don't know too many people that could do that. And, and we had this film of him. And uh, we showed it at Edinburgh. Uh, was that where? Yeah. And he heard about it. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, and he called me and said uh, uh, he wanted to see it. So he came down and looked at it. And we had mixed it ourselves in our a little home mixing studio we had in, in New York. And uh, so then he came over and spent at least a month working with me to finish, to get the film finished and to get, uh, he wanted to make some changes in the editing and we tried them out and uh, he was terrific to work with. It was a huge success, much to my surprise. And, uh, and David was, was delighted with it. And in a way, you know, he, he was as interested in filmmaking as he was in anything else. I mean, he was, I think, a fantastic actor, actually by himself, but the fact that that, that film came to, to exist is still a kind of surprise to me. You know the pinup comes out better than the stone that gets hard. You're the blessing with the spiders from Mars. I want to thank D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges for sharing their stories. On our next episode, I speak to Ezra Edelman, the director behind the seven-and-a-half-hour ESPN documentary, O.J. Made in America. The film spans O.J. Simpson's entire life against the backdrop of race relations in Los Angeles. And when I sort of started thinking more about what this O.J. story is, combined with the canvas that was being offered, it was, oh, I don't have to focus in on those two years in 1994 and 95. Those are sort of incidental to me. I can actually tell a story that explains um, what happened in 1994 and 95 and actually and offer context and really examine this history of a city in Los Angeles, the LAPD, the black community here. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.